winding road. Opportunities and challenges facing insurance companies. That's the topic of today. My name is Stuart Foley. This is the Insurance AUM Journal podcast. And we are joined by Ruth Ferrugia, Global Head of Insurance Asset Management for MetLife Investment Management, otherwise known as MIM. Welcome, Ruth. Thanks, Stuart. And thanks for having me today. It's great to be here. What I thought might be helpful for our audience today is to walk you through our macro outlook and potential risks that we are seeing on the horizon, but also looking through how we're navigating these markets as well, where we're finding relative value, good risk-adjusted returns for our life insurance portfolio clients, but also looking at the different opportunities as well across interest rate environments. And finally, I thought I'd touch upon ESG considerations in our investment strategy. That's great. I mean, obviously, everybody knows MetLife, massive general account, portfolio management effort, MIM managing money on a third-party basis. And so your views are very important on both sides of that. So can you set the stage for what MIM's macro outlook for the U.S. economy is And within that answer, what are some key risks that you're watching closely? That's a great start, Stuart. So I would say as a starting point, we do not know what the new normal is going to look like, right? So once we're past COVID, recovery could actually be bumpy. On the demand side, it's unclear at this juncture what post-COVID consumption patterns are going to look like. We don't know how this pandemic has changed people's preferences as a starting point. So we do not know where this consumption will take place, right? So it's important to almost like define that and and provide some context there. I mean, there's a lot of the pent-up demands, which may be for services, which is unlikely to create a sustainable boost to overall activity. And perhaps conversely, further demand for goods may stress available production of goods as well. So our view is that even with strong outputs, growth will not return to the pre-COVID trends until 2023. And I think I would say finally as well, and this has been, you know, it's very topical, it's been very discussed as well. We do not know whether an aging population will consider holding on to the savings that they've generated during this pandemic rather than immediately returning to what I would call kind of the higher level of consumptions. On the supply side, firms have difficulty returning to a normal level of production in an efficient and timely way, right, as well. So the demand estimates here, I think word of caution, demand estimates might be faulty. And I think what are the, as you think now through the implications, what are the implications here? The implications are that I would say investment products that are consumer based are likely to have, you know, stable to falling credit risk. But I think when it comes to standalone companies on a name by my name basis, that's where I think there's going to be a bit more of a shift to idiosyncratic risks, right? So you have to look at risk almost on a name-by-name basis, as opposed to, I would say, sort of like systematically. And I think when we focus on areas like real estate, for example, real estate performance, it will differ across type, 
and location, but maybe buoyed as well by rising inflation concerns. And I think touching upon the word inflation here, I think you know the key concern that comes out in, in every discussion, in every room, is inflation. I think we do see a higher level of inflation over the next year as low inflation readings heading into the crisis emerge on the other side with what can be defined as commensurately higher inflation. But this is likely to pull up the average inflation over a 10-year period. But we believe that this is not likely to be sustained enough to prompt a response from the Fed. I think that said, ongoing supply disruptions and the rising number of commodities in short supply do raise the possibility that inflation remains above the Fed's target for a longer period of time. But we believe that the Fed will tolerate inflation that they see as transitory. And I think that's key. The risk for the Fed is not so much about realized inflation, but rather surging inflation expectations as the Fed can overlook a brief period of inflation that appears to be high relative to recent past. But then what happens with yields, right? And this is where sort of like when we think about it, the rise in yields that could come out of this scenario, coupled with sustained shortages, may be difficult for the Fed to restrain without hiking rates, right? So this would further add, I would say, to the tail risk of a distribution across different outcomes. It's a really interesting idea about the Fed tolerating or having a more flexible, if you will, policy for this transitory inflation period. I think it's anecdotally something that I've seen even in the availability of there's certain shortages that you just don't think of automobile production due to chips and things that you just don't think of. And it's really interesting to think about that in terms of a transitory inflation risk and how the Fed might just kind of accept that for a period of time. For a period of time. Yeah. I've never, never considered that. I think it's really interesting. So given the macro backdrop, insurance companies think about not only strategic but also tactical allocations in the current environment if you have continued low interest rates. It's a great segue as well when it comes to thinking about investment strategy for insurance portfolios. You know, strategic asset allocation is applied, I would say, to determine portfolio positioning overall. But for us, it's based on an asset liability management process. So broadly speaking, we're relying on the maturity structure of our liabilities or predefined liabilities, because our investors are liability-driven at the end of it. And we're generally focused on risk-adjusted returns over a longer-term horizon. So it's important to set the scene, I would say, at the outset, because that is the starting premise. So on this, to that end and on this point, we work closely with our insurance clients to understand their objectives and constraints. And there's no one size fits all here. And coming up with, <laughs> absolutely I would say, not, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> and the aim here is to come up with an optimal asset allocation and an effective ALM program, if you will, to manage through varying interest rate environments, right? And then ultimately make tactical asset allocations 
to basically pivot along with changing markets. So that's, I would say, sort of like the starting premise and the overall context here. But now we bring that to looking at the current backdrop, which as we just said is complexity. It's, it's definitely, we're definitely an interesting juncture here, but strong central bank support globally, pretty much. Further stimulus, these are all positive headwinds for credit. And we've seen this translating in public markets with spreads tightening further across asset classes. We're close or at cycle tights at the moment. And in essence, I would say this has really shifted the opportunity set. So valuations are generally in the rich category. If you look at IG spreads, they're particularly rich, especially when you measure them on a duration-adjusted basis. There are some pockets of relative value across some of the public markets, which we'll discuss as well later on. But I think as I think through strategic asset allocation and just generally asset allocation teams, which we believe will continue to be of focus for life insurance companies, I think the main team will still very much revolve around investment in private markets. I think for life insurers, um, although there are regional differences, and I'll stress that from the outset, we feel that the outlook for long-term thematic drivers for investing in private markets remains positive at this point in time, especially as investors adapt to a series of structural shifts, as we just spoke about, but also increased focus on responsible investing, which we're going to touch upon later on as well. So it's important to bear in mind that as long-term investors, life insurers have the benefit to look beyond the short term and deploy capital in what I can sometimes describe as perhaps, you know, a patient way, looking at long-term horizons and long-term returns. So to that end, we believe that private assets form, you know, an integral part of strategic asset allocation and that discussion. And we've already, you know, we have seen increasingly a shift in tactical asset allocation towards these markets accelerated perhaps last year. So in Q2 2020, we saw sort of a dramatic spread contraction following the highs of, you know, spreads volatility in March. We saw the spread contraction at the back of Fed announcements. Basically, essentially what we saw was a shift towards private assets that were benefiting from a bit of a lag in healthier spread premiums, if you will. And I think if I think of the current environment, a yield-based strategy continues to tilt that shift towards these asset classes with the focus, I would say, for life insurance clients on the investment grade side, where we've seen increased demands for investment grade private credit, residential and commercial loans, but also in private structured credit, where we're seeing very healthy spread premium to publics. And as I said, up till the end of last year, the opportunities in the private markets continue to reflect that legged effect of the public market dislocation we saw earlier in the year. They've come back since then. Uh, there's been that contraction that we saw in spreads and the strong global technicals that we've seen in public markets has resulted in contraction in private markets as well. But we can still find very good relative value in private markets across some of the asset classes. So, um, you know, I would expect this trend to carry on. It's interesting when you bring up 
the duration adjusted risk in some of those public markets. And I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a certified bond geek. The lower rates go, the longer those durations get, right? And it's not the same, you know, 100 basis points spread when the basis is 5% is a whole lot different than a 100 basis point spread when the basis is 150 basis points, right? It's a different animal. And I, I think it's really interesting and insightful that you're looking at those risks on a duration-adjusted basis in particular. So as we emerge into a post-COVID world, where, and this is the this is a tough question. I'm sorry. But where do you see pockets of opportunity for both ALM and total rate of return oriented investors? That's such a great question. And I'm glad that, you know, in making the differentiation as well in terms of, you know, the different return profiles and different return requirements across the different balance sheets, because obviously the objectives will differ. Return profiles, risk profiles, risk appetite as well are very important considerations always as we think of kind of different insurance portfolios. I would say to add to the previous point and to your notes, at current spreads within public markets, I think there are some pockets of value within emerging market debt. So although I would say within the investment grade space, emerging market spreads for sovereigns, I think at around sort of hovering around 150 basis points on corporates, slightly around sort of higher, slightly around 170 or thereabouts. One could argue that they are rich on a standalone basis, but then relative to USIG, we feel that they still offer good spread pickup and actually are fairly cheap compared to some of the historical averages. You know, in general, corporate credit quality much better than sovereigns in this latest stages of the pandemic. And what's interesting about an emerging market allocation, it get, can be used across multiple strategies, depending on the risk appetite and portfolio requirements. So dynamically managed portfolio, alpha generation for total rate of return fits very well within that, within that investment strategy. For more liability-driven, longer-term required requirements in portfolios, then generally there would be perhaps a bit more of a long-term orientation mindset because investors here would be predominantly income-driven. And I think to that end, one may be rewarded by holding and actually even adding emerging markets selectively and opportunistically through market volatility. And I think it's important to be cognizant of risks across both environments, right? And being able to differentiate risk, I think with life insurer investors as well, managing downgrade risks is extremely important because of capital implications. Absolutely. I mean, and, and to your point around risk tolerance and risk appetite, I mean, my experience in running money is that there's no benchmark language that gets spoken, right? I've never met an insurance CEO that didn't say we have a conservative investment philosophy. But what that means to each company, that's a conversation, right? I mean, that is a what are your objectives conversation. That's right. Yeah. So you covered emerging market debt. Can we talk a little bit about bank loans and high yield? Sure. Again, very topical. And again, I would say at a very interesting juncture there as well. I think I would say 
you know, start with leverage loans. We like the relative value on the bank loan side at this point in time. I think there's also here, you know, the floating rate structure can help mitigate as well some of the duration risk in a rising rate environment and act as a hedge as well for inflation. So, you know, the LIBOR floors as well, which provide some structural protections. But we've also seen some good, I would say, attractive risk-adjusted returns across both investment-grade loans and below investment-grade. I think within the investment-grade space, it's interesting because you can get 50 to 60 basis points of extra spread versus your triple B investment-grade bonds on a three-year and five-year juncture, right? So right now, it's a good spot to be. With overall, I would say, valuations in the high-yield space, I think the market continues to price in strong economic growth and a strong recovery and improving fundamentals. That was validated by Q1 earnings as well, which are showing strong year-on-year growth and a good recovery there. So what we've seen with high yield spreads, and I think they've tightened around 70 basis points since the start of the year. And I think high yield remains at or near record lows of overall, when we talk of oil and yields, of around 4%. And I think there's another interesting dynamic at play here when it comes to high yield bonds. If you look at the secondary market, roughly 70% of the high yield market is trading to call. Right, so it's trading quite tight, which is a, it's not a new dynamic, but it's an interesting dynamic. The new issue market continues to offer, as a result, some opportunities in some of the segments where you can buy some good quality credits at some discounts to secondaries. But I think in terms of, you know, if you think about a rising rate environment, we could see double B spreads widen if rates stick up because of rate sensitivity there. So that presents, again, an interesting dynamic. And again, I would say higher rates that signal stronger economic growth, they would be a positive, as we said, for overall credit, for underlying credit fundamentals, and would also benefit the high-yield asset class. So we would expect here some technical shifts along the way. Okay, so moving on to real estate. How do you see commercial mortgage loans, those impacted most by COVID-19? What's your view of that asset class? That's such an interesting question. As we think of emerging opportunities in private markets, when it comes to commercial mortgage loans in particular, you know, especially areas that were mostly impacted by COVID-19, you know, when we think of originations as a starting point, we've seen you know, origination activity starting to gain more momentum across the different lender times. We expect origination activity to continually improve in the coming, coming months. Those sectors, I would say, as office, where there's some lingering, you know, post-COVID, I would say, uncertainty might not reach pre-COVID origination levels in the very near term. The market dislocation created by the pandemic may produce some short-term opportunities here to acquire assets at discounts to long-term values, whilst also obtaining, I would say, good, attractive lending spreads in underserved parts of the hospitality market. And I think just to take a step back here as well, you know, the hotel sector has been the most directly and severely impacted by COVID-19. 
And perhaps this is a more, I would say, complicated asset class, right? A more complex subsector to lend on compared to the more core property times with long-term leases, such as office and retail and warehouse. So capital market conditions here remain, I would say, strained and stressed. This is despite the quickly recovering occupancy and room rates that we've seen in recent months. So currently, I would say there still remains limited liquidity and investment capital available to the sector. But given the steady progress with vaccine distribution in the US, especially we believe you know, hotel occupancies have likely dropped at this juncture and will steadily recover until reaching pre-COVID demands, we estimate sort of like the 2022 and 2023 in terms of time horizon. But that said, the recovery will likely be uneven across the hotel subtypes. And ultimately, we believe that this will create pockets of investment opportunities for a real estate lending platform. We'd expect the leisure hotel assets to recover faster than hotels more dependent on group and business travel. And that's due in part to both pent-up demands for leisure travel, but also equally the opposite is true for increased, I would say, adoption of, of virtual meetings. So to that end, I think, where are we right now in terms of kind of from an RV perspective, hotels are attractively priced in our view at this point in time. In the commercial mortgage sector, hotels are pricing at roughly 300 basis points spread premium over publics. Just to provide some perspective there and some context, this is generally in normal times around 100 basis points. So, you know, there's very good relative value there. And I think shifting gears a bit to kind of the equity space, we estimate that hotels are pricing at roughly, I would say, 15% in terms of discount when compared to pre-COVID levels. And I think to move sort of maybe more kind of to your earlier point in terms of the total rate of return space and sticking perhaps to kind of the equity side of things, you know, we do like the attractive total returns of real estate equity, right? I think that's you know, from a kind of total rate of return perspective, it's a good asset class. I think once again, given the complexity and bearing in mind the origination time to completion of a transaction, there's an illiquidity consideration here to keep in mind. But we do think about this as an illiquid asset class, which carries a yield premium, attractive on a total rate of return basis, perhaps, you know, not so much from an NII or income perspective, because your returns come through appreciation and capital gains. But we believe that the asset class as well, it adds diversification. There's this additional benefit, if you will, at the asset class level, but also with time, if you have the right origination platform, you can create diversified portfolios as well. And that no discussion of opportunities is complete without private credit, in particular infrastructure. Infrastructure requires not just everybody can play in infrastructure. You've got to be of a certain size in order to be effective there. And I know that that this is an area that MetLife Investment Management has a substantial effort. So could you just kind of hone in on the private credit infrastructure opportunity set as you see it? That's such a great point, right? Because at the end of the day, I think to operate effectively and efficiently in these markets, you do need to have 
deep origination platforms. You do need to have these market relationships. But I think when it comes to private credit, I think we've seen some very good relative value overall when it comes to, to private credit. And I think as we mentioned earlier as well, they're a good match for long duration portfolios as well. So they tick the ALM bucket as well in terms of you know the additional, the incremental benefits, I would say, for life portfolios. With infrastructure, I think it's been, I would say, a very interesting start to the year because once again, we've seen origination picking up. The market has picked up, especially when it comes to certain segments. The production, as we said, tends to be longer dated. In terms of weighted average life, we're talking about the 15, 16 years. So as I said, sort of very good fit for long duration portfolio needs and very healthy spread premium to publics. We're talking 90 to 100 basis points. And I think in terms of the pipeline, we see the pipeline, you know, it continues to be very strong across different geographies as well. You know, in Europe, we've seen, say, good origination and a good pipeline in housing and utilities, in sports and in power. And we're seeing good ramp up activity in the U.S. as well, especially as we're heading into kind of, you know, May, June in the U.S. as well with renewables, with energy savings utilities, but also in digital infrastructure, right? So again, there's, you know, tangential point as well, which is extremely important as we talk to kind of sustainable and responsible investing. And I think as you think through kind of relative value as well for these asset classes, the relative value and the spread premium to publics actually reflects, is very reflective of the complexity of the underlying assets, the region, the issuers themselves. So. You mentioned private asset classes for insurance companies, and I think the data bears out that there has been a lot of flows to private asset classes for the reasons that you've pointed out about the relative value. But are there other considerations that should be factored in when talking about private placements above and beyond just what's the yield? So when you think about these asset classes and their characteristics, you know, incremental yield potential, they're efficient from a capital point of view as well, both, you know, if you think about U.S. regime, both from an RBC perspective, as well as economic capital, you've got downside protections, structural protections as well. And ultimately, you know, they expand the investable universe, right? So these are all benefits. But ultimately, I think one of the primary considerations that we touched upon earlier is you need to have a broad and deep origination platform with specific relationships, direct marketing to effectively operate in these markets. So there might be barriers to entry here as well. So for some investors, this might not be cost effective. So you'd need to look at third party asset managers that are heavily involved within these asset classes. And I would say to that end, you know, the outsourcing dynamic has been a key point of discussion over the last few years for investors who do not have direct access to these platforms. And also because there is an appreciation of the benefits, you know, the potential benefits that these asset classes provide and that they might add significant value to insurance portfolios. But important, I would say always to bear in mind that you know you need to have the strong origination platform to be able to operate and originate effectively these asset classes. 
And I totally get that. I mean, it has a tremendous impact on your deal flow, right? Which is the, the name of the game. The thing that everybody talks about is liquidity, what we can refer to as the illiquidity factor. How much is too much in private asset classes? That's such a great question because, you know, and I like how you've defined it as the illiquidity factor. Because I think when it comes to many of these asset classes, as we alluded to before, they're a good match against longer dated liabilities. They have spread duration, contribution, and good ALM benefits there. But, you know, private assets operate in different markets. And in some instances, you are able to find some pockets of liquidity, but this is very asset class dependent. And I think, you know, in reality here, the question goes back to asset allocation, right? To the point that you made, which is, it's the most important point. And how much should we and can we allocate to these asset classes within a portfolio? And the answer here will vary by insurance company largely dictated by the underlying business mix and by the nature of the underlying liabilities and the actual liquidity requirements for portfolios. And this will vary materially across insurance balance sheets. I would say when it comes to um, insurance companies, our experience has been here that most insurance companies will have very defined liquidity limits This is based on the underlying business mix, as we said, the underlying liabilities, but will also, you know, be based on stress testing their balance sheets, looking at historical experiences, which they will review very regularly. And ultimately, this will also determine the asset allocation mix and the amount of allocation that you have to to private assets. And ultimately, you know, we feel, I mentioned earlier on, ALM discipline, we would view this, you know, as an integral part of management of, you know, part of the ALM process, management of liquidity. It ties into a strong ALM philosophy and management of ALM. And no investment discussion is complete without including ESG. We are partners with PRI. We're also signatories. It's a big topic. Big topic today, major focus for insurers, asset managers, regulators, and so forth. How does ESG factor into an insurance company's investment strategy? This is a strong team. Well, to your point, we've seen an acceleration of focus across the boards. And I think it's probably safe to say that a strong ESG platform is critical for any issuer to effectively perform through time. But let's just take a step back. So when it comes to an investment process, it's founded on disciplined fundamentals, research, and underwriting. There's a rigorous security selection process. And this would also include a specific evaluation of each and every issuer's ESG philosophy. So that would include environmental issuers, labor practices, as well as the governing structure. I think to that end as well, we're also seeing increased focus on ESG reporting. And I would say as an asset manager, I feel that our role is critical in supporting our clients with their ESG objectives. And it starts with research integration and engagement with our issuers. So our analysts seek to fully understand company objectives and ensure they consider material 
ESG factors when identifying business risks and opportunities. I mean, one other point, which I think is, you know, we're seeing again an acceleration and increasingly ESG considerations are becoming an integral part of portfolio construction. Part of the decision-making process when building and managing portfolios. So the expectation here is that ESG factors will become a key part of strategic asset allocation. And ultimately, this ties in with the long-term top-down asset allocation as well, that is strategic asset allocation. And I think here, perhaps it's also important, you know, to bear in mind and factor in risk management into this discussion, given that ESG risks have systematic long-term implications as well as an asset class. So the market and at the sector levels as well, and they fit into wide global teams. I think perhaps the best example is sizing up exposures to climate transition risks, right, which is extremely topical as well. So these risks are structural long-term in nature, so a natural consideration as well here when it comes to kind of the long-term horizons that underpin and define strategic asset allocation. So we remain very actively focused here on ESG as a team at the different levels of the investment process, and I would expect this heightened focus, it's here to stay. That's fantastic. So here's the portion of the program that you you probably didn't prepare for. It's called the Ask Me Anything portion. Okay. Part of my real core is to be the loudest white male voice in America for diversity and inclusion in the insurance asset management space, in the insurance industry, in the asset management business in general. So... I want to take you back to a particular day in your life that I have a feeling you'll remember well. This is your graduation to getting your undergraduate degree in college. Now, no matter what happened the evening before, whatever celebrations there may have been, there you are, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in your robe and cap and gown and everything else, and it's all good. Now, You, like me, your last name starts with F, so it's not too long of a wait, and they read your name, and across the stage you go, you get a quick handshake, you get your diploma, a quick photo op, and you go across, you're waving to the crowd, and as you walk down the stairs, you run into yourself today. What do you tell your 21-year-old self? That's such a great question. I love that question. I would tell my 21-year-old self to stay focused, to work hard, and be committed always to her work. I would tell her to manage her career very closely. It's extremely important. And to be fearless in her decisions. Because ultimately, I think it's extremely important to take constructive and well-informed risks in your career. Same as, I would say, investment philosophy. It is such great advice. And it is obvious to me that you've taken it because you are, Ruth Faruja, the global head of insurance asset management for MetLife. So thank you very much for a great global market overview, for some very good advice, and for taking time out of your day. Thanks for being on, Ruth. Thanks, Stuart. 
Thanks very much for listening to another edition of the Insurance AUM Journal podcast. If you have ideas for podcasts, please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name is Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal podcast. Thank you.